going to start in verse 12 this morning. This is the second part of this, uh, this chapter that we've been looking at. Um, I'm turning 40 this year, and I am feeling it. Uh, my body is telling me that this is happening. Um, and uh, I, I'm finding that I have more aches and pains in my 39th year of life than years prior. Uh, especially, I, I've, I'm finding that it takes me longer to recover from a workout. Um, that is, if I go and work out. Um, but it's taking me longer than... Uh, before. Uh, I'm finding also that my mind is a lot more athletic than my body, you know. I'm still playing basketball twice a week, and I know where I'm supposed to be on the court. I can see, you know, the offensive player making a move. I know what he's doing. He just does it, you know, <laughs> and I'm there watching. Uh, and so I'm finding that I'm slowing down and hurting more and more, and I'm also, it's, it's really amazing to me how, you know, smaller parts of our bodies uh, have big impacts, and the whole of our health and our body. Uh, I'm especially noticing my knees and my ankles these days. Uh, I, you know, I used to once upon a time, as, as you take the trash to the transfer site like we do, you know, I'd just hop out of the back of my truck like it was nothing. And now I think about it. Like, you know, if I jump out, I'm going to feel that tomorrow. And I want to do that. Similarly, a couple years ago, um, I accidentally uh, scratched my cornea. Has anybody ever done that before? Yeah? It's horrible. You know, you're just like, this is just an eyeball. It's just one, you know, it's just, it's just like the size of a grape. It's just, you know, it's just an eyeball. But when that sucker is scratched, it's all you can think about. You know, it's just that pain. It's right there. You look at something and your eyes water. I mean, my eyes can start watering sympathetically even talking about it. It's just this little part of me and yet it can make the whole of me uncomfortable. In high school, uh, I developed appendicitis my senior year, and I had to have my appendix removed in an emergency surgery. They got it just in time before it ruptured, thank God. But I was amazed afterwards how just this, you know, little tiny thing that they removed, which has seemingly no significance, how much pain it caused, how much discomfort it caused, and then even once it was removed, how difficult it was to do simple things like cough or sneeze, or roll over, or something like that. Uh, Our body, we understand, we all know this, is an integrated unit, and even seemingly small parts have big implications for our whole body health. And this is the same kind of illustration that Paul uses in the passage that we're looking at today. He taps into this reality, something that everybody can identify with. He uses our physical body as a metaphor for the church community, to understand how it works together, how it's knit together, and the implications of relationships and these kinds of things. And so what I really want you to hear this morning is this, that the church body, the church community, is an integrated body. And that even seemingly small parts affect the whole body's health. And that really is the organizing principle in this chapter, in chapter 12 of Corinthians here. We are an integrated whole And every part of us matters. Uh, Look with me at verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now I want to pause here. 
let's, let's recognize that here's an opportunity for some in, in, interpretive skill development. Remember, I want you guys not just to be those who hear the word of God preached, but that you would be equipped to discover what the word of God says for yourselves. And here we find uh, repetition. Five times in the first two verses, we see the same word used, the word one. And, and as I've, I've taught you guys, uh, repetition is the volume knob of scripture, right? When we see that kind of repetition, we know the author's making a point. This is the focus. So listen in and pay attention to it. And so Paul's emphasis here, right at the beginning, is on the oneness of the body. The integrated oneness. We are one. God has made us to be one, even though we have many parts. And he makes this point by showing us, especially, that we are given the same spirit. The same Holy Spirit. Now, I made this statement two weeks ago, and we talked about that a little bit. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to try to show you a little bit of some of the implications of that this morning. Um, we don't, each of us, have our own personal Holy Spirit. Okay? The same Holy Spirit of God, the second member, the third member of the triune Godhead, inhabits his people. And each of us have him indwelling us. It is the same Holy Spirit. It's not a different spirit in each of us. Um, but Paul says here that we are all baptized by one spirit and given the same spirit to drink. In other words, what we need to understand here is that this is the true experience for every believer. It's not the experience of just a special few on the margins or on the periphery. But this is the experience of every single believer that they are baptized by the same Holy Spirit and given that same Spirit to drink. Now let's back up theologically here just a little bit. We're going to get a running start at this so we can understand the implications. We need to recognize that mankind's default position is that we are sinful and that we are separated from God. Uh, the world doesn't like that teaching. The world would have us believe that we're all inherently good. And I would say, well, that's baloney. I mean, all you have to do is volunteer in the nursery to know that that's not the case, right? <laughs> you don't have to teach a child to sin, right? They'll just smash the kid next to him to get that toy. Sin's right there with us. We have to teach people to obey, right? We have to teach people how to bring their desires under control, under the control of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're not all inherently good. We are inherently fallen. That's our default position, sinful and separated from God. We have uh, inherited Adam's sin. He sinned as our representative, like a federal representative. If, if our president declares that we're at war, then guess what? We're all at war. He makes a declaration. He makes an act, a decision for all of us. Adam did the same thing. When he and Eve sinned in the garden and rebelled against God, he sinned, in a sense, for all humanity. He represented us there. We all have been alienated with God and have imputed sin because of that act. And we've all, we know, even if we don't like that, we, we all, we know, have happily added to sin in our own life. Through decisions and through our own actions, we've added to that. Mankind's default position is fallen and separated from God. The gospel is the good news that through genuine faith in Jesus Christ, we can be born again. We can have new life. We can be what the Bible calls regenerated. That is, it's the beginning of spiritual life and vitality in us. What was absent and missing before is implanted in us through the Holy Spirit. 
Spiritual life and vitality is restored. We are reunited with God like a a seed that is planted within us that germinates or like conception. We are given new life. We're born again by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what Paul means when he says that we're baptized here. The Greek word behind uh, baptized, as it's translated here, is baptizo. And it means to immerse. To to immerse. That's that's why we as a Baptist church practice baptism by immersion. uh, Because we feel like that's the most accurate picture of what the word means. It means to dip or to immerse. So when we baptize somebody, we lower them into the water, which is symbolic of death to sin. That they have been cleansed through the death of Christ. That they're raised up to new life. That's the picture. And so Paul is saying you have been baptized, uh, all of you have been baptized by one spirit. So when a sinner expresses saving faith in Jesus, we're given new life, spiritual life through the Holy Spirit. We're immersed in the Holy Spirit and he begins to mediate to us the blessings of Jesus Christ. Those are things like his indwelling presence that we're sealed. We know we're part of the family of God sealed in him, made secure. He begins to illuminate to us the teachings of the scripture which otherwise would wash over our minds, but now we see them because the Holy Spirit brings them to light. And he empowers us to live a life of godliness which we are unable to do on our own and through our own effort. This is the work of the Holy Spirit and the believer. And so Paul bases his further teaching Uh, in this section really on this point on what it means to be baptized by uh, the same Holy Spirit and to drink of the same Holy Spirit of God. So what we need to understand is this. This is the initial right and the universal experience of all believers. You've experienced this just in everyday life. Let me give you a picture of it. Sometimes you'll meet somebody and you'll find out they're a Christian and and by virtue of being a Christian, we know that means they have the Holy Spirit in them. And, and you immediately recognize we have an awful lot in common, right? I'm not talking about hobbies or personality or passions or these kinds of things. But you just know, all of a sudden, this is someone who is like an old friend, right? Or better yet, a family member. And they are. The same Holy Spirit is in them, guiding their lives, instructing their lives, and leading them as he is leading me. It's the same spirit. So there is a familiarity. There is a recognition of one another. And I think oftentimes what it is, it's the recognition of the spirit of God in one another. The same spirit. And and we find that resonance with one another. Um, Now I want to give you this warning here. When I say that this is the initial right and this is the universal experience of all true believers, I want to give you a warning here. There are some people out there Uh, especially those sort of in in charismatic or in the Pentecostal arena, who will claim that baptism in the Holy Spirit is a secondary experience and that it's evidenced by speaking in tongues. And they'll go further to say that unless that occurs, unless somebody speaks in tongues to give evidence that the Holy Spirit is in them, then they're not a true believer. And I want to tell you that's flat wrong. It is in direct contradiction to what the scriptures teach as a whole. And it's in direct contradiction to this specific passage in front of us. And so if you hear that that person is misled. And you take them right back to this text here. The whole sentiment of this passage is in contradiction to that. He's telling us. Paul is telling us in the Corinthians. He's saying don't make value judgments on people. And on their spiritual status based upon their spiritual gifts. 
especially the sensational gifts, because we're all baptized, we're all, notice the word, we're all, and all means all, we're all baptized by the same Spirit of God. And so those who are making a demand for a second baptism of the Spirit uh, with the expectation of speaking in tongues, they're contradicting what Paul is saying right here in this very passage. And if you want to read further on that, I've recommended a great book at the end of your notes. Uh, It's called, uh, I think it's Baptism in Fullness by John Stott, uh, but it's listed there, and that's a great book for reading up on that particular topic. Now, I've lingered here a bit because this is important. This is foundational. This is the base. And if we don't get the basis of Paul's teaching right here, we're going to end up in some wonky places. So we want to make sure that, uh, that we hear this. We are baptized by the same Holy Spirit, made alive to drink of the same Holy Spirit. You notice that repetition of the sameness here. And all of this is an emphasis at the beginning on oneness before he moves on to, diverse, to the diverse um, dispersion of the Holy Spirit and expression of the Holy Spirit in the body. That's our second point. God has designed us for mutual belonging and for interdependence. Look at verse 14. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Now, if the foot should say, oh, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it wouldn't, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if an ear should say, oh, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now, this particular section here is really addressing those who are in the congregation, especially in Corinth, and by extension us, those who are struggling with what we might call an inferiority complex. Okay? Uh, those who, who, who might be saying, I, I, don't, I don't really feel like I belong. I, I don't really feel connected. I, I don't feel like I'm really needed in the body. I don't feel like my gifts, my spiritual gifts are noticed or understood or necessary or important. Uh, this passage is really written towards what I might, you might call the spiritual Eeyores out there. You know, right? you know Eeyore? From, you know what I'm talking about a little bit? Oh, I might as well just stand over here alone. You know? And Paul is addressing that attitude and he's getting in your face pastorally with truth and with love. He's saying, you can't say those things about yourself, nor about the body of Christ. You can't say those things. As a Christian, as one who has been baptized by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit of God, you are, each and every one of you, you are an integral part of the body of Christ. That is the compliment, that is the honor and the dignity that Almighty God bestows on each one. You are an integral member of the body of Christ, entrusted with the spiritual gift that is absolutely indispensable for the health of the body. Now, if you remember, uh, the presenting issue here in Corinth, remember there was sort of a hyper-focus on some of the more sensational spiritual gifts within the church, especially, it seems, speaking in tongues. And that becomes a real prominent feature here. 
throughout the passage up until the end of chapter 14. And we looked at this at the beginning of chapter 12 two weeks ago. It seems as though the Corinthians would have sent to Paul in a letter a question along the lines of, and which of the gifts is so supreme, right? Which is the most important? And who among us is the most important based upon the spiritual gifts that they possess? That seems to be the question that has been asked. Um, It also seems that in light of some of these more prominent or conspicuous gifts in the community here that um, some of the other more subtle or behind-the-scene gifts, maybe of service and compassion, helps, support, these kinds of things, it it seems as though people who had those felt disrespected, uh, dishonored, uh, made to feel insignificant. That's the battle going on in the church. That's what Paul is confronting here. And his solution to them, or his answer, is really he's careful to affirm that each gift is important to the church, especially so that, and hear this, especially so that they would be, as a church, a true representation of the person and the image of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, we know that the person and the character of Jesus Christ is being formed within each one of us as the Holy Spirit teaches us what the text has to say and shows us what it means to be a follower of his and convicts us about sin and teaches us about obedience. This is the work of the Holy Spirit happening in our life. It's called sanctification where we are becoming more and more like Jesus on an individual level. So that's happening in all of us. But it will only be in community that Jesus will be wholly represented. We won't get a true picture of Jesus by looking at any one of us. We will only get a true picture of the person and the character and the nature of Jesus Christ looking at his collective community. We are the body of Christ. We are together a more accurate picture and representative of who he is. That is why we cannot have some features of the body saying, I'm not really needed, I'll stand over here alone. When that happens, whether they do it themselves or whether they're pressed to do that, we end up with what I would call a caricature of Christ. A false image. A false picture. You guys know what a caricature is, right? We, a cartoonist draws something and they're able to capture somebody's likeness, uh, but at the same time, they capture that likeness through distortion, Right? exaggeration or omission, uh, minimizing certain things. So I brought some caricatures for us this morning to have a little bit of fun with. Um, The first one here, you know this guy, maybe? This is Mark Zuckerberg, right? Uh, Founder of Facebook. You know, I mean, we recognize him, but you notice that there are some of his facial features which are, well, let's just say hopefully distorted, right? All right, let's move along here. How about, how about uh, this guy? You know, we've got Einstein here. How do, how do we know this is Albert Einstein? Look how, look how close his eyes are together. And, and yet it, it's, it's close enough to get it to, for us to recognize him. Uh, but those cheeks, man, you know, and that looks like a comb for a mustache. He's distorted. Who's this one? Steve Jobs. The apple was helpful, right? Did you get that? Look at his nose and those jaws. All right. Who is this? Tom Cruise, right? And now we have the artist. Their rendering is not just capturing facial features, but in fact now we're getting a glimpse at at least how the artist uh, perceives 
Tom to behave, right? Interesting. Look at those teeth, man. Those are some chompers. Uh, and the next one we have here, let's see. All right, who is this guy? I asked this first service, and a little kid in the front row said, it's you. So we escorted him out, and you know, you'll never hear from him again. This is Louis C.K., Right? This is a comedian whom I don't recommend for you, but as I've already shared with you all, this is an individual that some really um, you know, unintelligent people seem to think that I look like, and um, <laughs> maybe when I turn 50. So, but here is a, here is a caricature of Louis C.K., and I have to admit, around the forehead and the eyes, I, I'm sorry to say, I see it, and I don't like it. <laughs> so here's Louis C.K. There's another one, the Rolling Stones. Right? Look at the guy in the end with the note. I can't, who, who is this? Does anybody know? Yeah, we're all Christians. Nobody knows here. All right. And then here we have Will Smith. And look at the ears. Oh, that's brutal, right? That is brutal. And here we have Jay Williams, right? <laughs> Clint Eastwood. So we understand caricatures. We understand that a likeness can be captured even through exaggeration and distortion. And yet, we are not meant to represent a caricature of Christ, but rather a true and living image. However, when we neglect certain spiritual gifts, when we minimize, when we make some more prominent than others, when we don't pay proper honor and credence to all of the gifts as God has given them, we end up forming caricatures of Christ Jesus instead of representing an accurate, an accurate portrayal. So here's a question that I'd ask you to think about. This has been haunting me all week when it came to me, but um, it's, a little, it's actually a little painful to think about, but here it is. If a cartoonist were to draw a caricature of Jesus Christ based upon Bethel Church's representation of him, what would it look like? What, what features would be distorted because we've distorted them? What things would be exaggerated because we've exaggerated what traits would be minimized because we minimize them? And, and last of all, if forced to look at it, how would we feel about that image that we're portraying? That's what's been running through my head this last week. Um, you know, it's hard for each one of us to do something about the whole, but here's some specific points of application that I would give to you. Number one, identify your own spiritual gift. God has put in you through the power of the Holy Spirit something that you are uniquely able to do. Something that you do with distinction and with greatness and very likely it's not even aware. You're probably not even aware of it because it comes natural to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are so inclined towards compassion you don't even think about it as compassion. You just think about it as being you. And yet those around you who are not so gifted look at that and go, that person is empowered by God for that specific activity. So my encouragement would be to you to identify your spiritual gift. It has been entrusted to you for the good of the body of Christ. You should know what they are. And the best ways to figure out, again, is to ask your community, your close friends around you, 
Simply ask them the question. You're not fishing for a compliment here. Just ask them the question, can you help me understand the ways in which I'm a blessing to you because of God's influence in my life? Can you help me see that so I can be a good steward of it? That's what you're asking. Secondly, engage with your gifts. It's not enough just to know what they are. If I were to sit here and go, you know, I think God has given me the spiritual gift of of teaching. I think that might be the case. That's really good to know. And I were to never put it in place. Or, or, or my peers or, or the body of Christ were to never say, Eric, you ought to be exercising that for the sake of the body. You know, w- what a waste. And I, and I believe I would stand before the Lord and have to give account for that. Eric, what did you do with what I entrusted to you? I felt really good about it. Right? Not the reason it was given. And then finally, I think for for leaders uh, in the church, like myself, I think we need to be really good at helping people identify and draw out their spiritual gifts, especially those that maybe are more subtle or behind the scenes or not as obvious. We need to make sure that we're giving proper honor to those gifts and seeing them used for the sake of the body so that we do not become a caricature with an exaggeration on some and an omission on others. And so we're taught here, essentially, don't belittle your own gift, right? And secondly, don't belittle the gift of others. Now, as I said two weeks ago, there are four primary passages in the New Testament which speak about spiritual gifts. Uh, We see them here in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, We see them in Romans chapter 12. We see them in 1 Peter 4. And we see them in Ephesians chapter 4. Now if you look at these four lists and you were to lay them all out side by side, you would notice a couple of things. The first thing that you would notice is that some of the gifts are repeated. Another thing you would notice is that none of the lists are the same. And I think that's telling. I think what that shows us is that we're not given an exhaustive list of all of the spiritual gifts in the scriptures. But I think there are many kinds of gifts. And even to that point, I would show that if you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 31... We see a fellow there by the name of Bezalel who is gifted by God, by the Spirit of God, with, the, with craftsmanship. You don't hear, you, you talk to somebody, hey, what's your spiritual gift? You don't often hear somebody go, it's craftsmanship, right? You, you don't typically hear that one. But I think that's really there. Some of you are so capable with your hands. You can think something in your mind, you can envision it, and you can make your hands create and fabricate that thing. Drives me crazy. You know? I can't do that. I don't have that gift. Uh, the, the, the end product always comes out horrible. And I have to call one of you for help. Um, but God has given some the gift of craftsmanship. Um, so again, ask people around you to affirm the, you know, what, what gift they feel is, is within you. That the Holy Spirit is using them, uh, you in their life. Um, and again, don't think of it simply as... Well, there's tasks in the church that need to, get, need to get done, so how do I use my gifts just for those tasks? I mean, that's true. That's part of it. But a big part of it, too, is just that we are together representing the person and the character of Jesus Christ. We're, we're making a sketch for the world to see. And that is why each and every gift is indispensable, uh, as we're going to see here. So for those reasons, don't belittle your own gift. Don't belittle the gift of others. Let's look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The hand cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. There's the word. 
And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unrepresentable, (laughs) second service, unrepresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Okay, so first of all, we need to recognize that God is the one who is ordering the gifts. He's the one who has arranged them, right? You know, Picasso has his, arra- his way of arranging, you know, body parts in his pictures. Well, God has his way of arranging uh, the, the unique gifts of the Holy Spirit among his corporate body as well. And so we need to recognize that it is God who has done this. It is God who has dispersed and who has ordered. Uh, different translations use different wording here. The 1984 NIV says God has ordered. The ESV and the NAS use the word composed. God has composed. Uh, the King James uses the word tempered. That's an interesting word. God has tempered the body. He, he, he's made us uh, differently here. Uh, But all of them capture the idea that this is God's intentional design. Uh, If we were writing a Fairbanks version of the Bible, we might say, God engineered. (laughs) Right? Uh, That's that's what we would see here. He engineered the body of Christ with the diversity of gifts. Um, And we've already seen this again in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All of these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. God is sovereign over the distribution of the gifts. And he does this for two reasons. One, we're told, or because of this, there shouldn't be any division. In other words, we shouldn't be competing with one another for spiritual superiority. We're one body. We're integrated and we are to represent the image of Christ together. It's absurd for the foot and the hand to have a discussion about who's more important, right? They're, they're both important. They're both indispensable. Uh, in fact, he goes on to say in verse uh, 26 and 27, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. If I could say this even more provocatively, I think there's some specific cases in each one of our lives where you might say that we are made spiritually deficient. <laughs> Uh, some of us more than others. Uh, there's, there's some real weaknesses in our lives. And I think God has done that on purpose so that we might depend upon one another. That we might together integrate and represent the whole rather than any one of us in totality. Um, now here's the thing, and this is important here. No gift makes any one member of more value. We don't rank people by their gifts. Each member, each person is to have equal concern for one another. That's the next point that we see. Because God is the one who is ordered, there should be no division, and there should be equal concern for one another. But now here's where the whole passage seemingly goes off the rails, right at the end. We're just about ready to cry out with simplicity and clarity. We think we've got it now. We're about ready to say, therefore all gifts are created equal. Right? It feels that way. And yet, as we go on, we find, wait a minute, the passage doesn't allow us to say that. And you go, what? Paul, are you just undoing everything you've just said? What's the point here? 
what we find, in fact, is that there is a ranking of the gifts. In other words, there are some gifts that are greater than other gifts, even though the people themselves are, do not receive more honor for them, if that makes sense. In other words, there are some gifts that are greater than others, and we are specifically told to desire the greater gifts. These are not my words. These are Paul's words. Look at verse 28, and we'll see how he ranks them. And God has placed in the church, first of all, first of all, apostles, and second, prophets, and third, teachers, and then miracles, and then gifts of healing, and of helping, of guidance, and of different kind of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you the most excellent way. So there it is. Paul actually ranks the gifts, and he tells us explicitly to desire the greater gifts. So how do we reconcile all of this together? It's a, it's a, a tough passage in, in that way. But here's the issue. The, what Paul is doing here is he is asking us to recalibrate our estimation of the gifts. And instead of measuring their importance or the greatness of the gift by what brings us personal honor or personal attention, we are to prioritize them in order of what builds up the body the most. In other words, this was the issue in Corinth. People were seeking personal self-worth, especially from these sensational gifts that made them prominent as wild things were happening in the congregation. And Paul is flipping their ranking system on its head. He is saying there are some gifts which are greater than others, but the greatness is measured by how it benefits the body, not how it gives honor to the individual. He inverts the thing. In other words, we might say that what Paul is doing is he's redefining what greatest really means. And here we find congruence with the teachings of Jesus Christ. He who would be greatest among you must what? He must be the servant of all. The Corinthians were seeking self-promotion, self-honor, self-aggrandizement. And Paul is saying you've got it backwards. If you want to be great, you find out what serves the body the most and get busy with that. That's who is greatest. There are greater gifts, but there are no greater members. We don't derive personal value from the gift entrusted to us. They're all gifts. Gifts, which means there's a giver who bestowed them to us, right? We can't pat ourselves on the back for having them. We're stewards of them. And so we, like the Corinthians, need to redefine what greatness means, making sure that we give ourselves to the service and the edification and the building up of the body of Christ, lest we create for others to see a gross caricature of Jesus. Gifts are given for the good of the body and for the glory of Christ. There should be no spiritual superiority or self-promotion in those. And as we move on here in chapter 14, we're going to see uh, how Paul kind of values the scale of gifts based upon the contribution to the body. And in chapter 13, we're going to look at next week one of the great beloved passages in all of the scriptures, right? Love is, love is. We're going to see that love is the motivation behind the gifts. It is the demeanor of the gifts being exercised. God has entrusted something to you, Christian. You do it by the power of the Holy Spirit.
for the sake of the image of Christ and for the sake of the body of Christ. We need to get on with the service uh, of his people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we need one another to adequately represent you to a world who does not know you. We thank you for that because, God, if each of us could do it in our own, what a mess. We who are prone to pride and to sin would make a mess of it for sure. God, may we learn more and more what it means to be to be a corporate expression of Christ Jesus. May we, Lord, as we use our own gifts and as we seek to encourage and to benefit from the gifts of others, especially those which are seemingly more subtle or behind the scenes, may we, God, paint an accurate picture of Jesus. May we truly build one another up to be something that is so conspicuous that the world would say there is something different about those folks. Lord, may people see Jesus in us as a whole. May they truly see the body of Christ, a risen Lord and Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.